The data are unambiguous. Exercise not only delays actual death, but also prevents both cognitive and physical decline better than any other intervention. It is the single most potent tool we have in the Health Span Enhancing Toolkit, and that includes nutrition, sleep, and medications. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to SolvingType2Diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. I hope you have had a very good week. I've had a fun week. I was home for seven days after our cruise. So, of course, I got a lot of time in on my favorite rail trail, the Lebanon Valley Rail Trail, which is near my house. And uh, I get on that trail up in Colebrook, Pennsylvania, if you want to look at a map. C-O-L-E-B-R-O-O-K, Colebrook, Pennsylvania, is where I get on the trail normally. And I walk down towards Mount Gretna, very scenic, and I enjoy that a lot. And that gives me, depending on how far I want to go, I make a loop, and it gives me usually three to four miles. And I did that a few times this week. Then on Thursday, we took a drive up here to Maine, where we currently are. We're currently in York, Maine, visiting. Good opportunity to get up here during the winter. We actually got a snowstorm yesterday. We got about six inches of snow. And really, that's the first snow I've experienced this winter. At home in Pennsylvania, we've had no measurable snow while I've been home. And of course, when I was in the Caribbean, we had no snow. But up here, we got some snow. So yesterday, the kids were able to go out and make a snowman, which was fun. And I took a a nice long walk yesterday in the snow. Not too bad. They plow the roads up here really, really well unlike when I was out in Arkansas and I gotten out there after they had a snowstorm and they really didn't plow anything. But up here, even like this is a back road off of a back road and it was plowed, I'm going to say three, maybe four times yesterday during this snowstorm. It had snowed starting, I don't know, they said it started around one o'clock in the morning and then it stopped snowing by about four o'clock in the afternoon. So it lasted about 15 hours. We got about six inches of snow and the road was really clear during the entire event. And now I'm looking outside and the road actually looks dry. It's a nice sunny day today, about 41. I'll get out for a walk here shortly after recording this. So for my eating this past week, I had some stuff out of the freezer. We really didn't need to make anything. I had some of that great Mississippi pot roast, I had some vegetable beef soup, I had some of my yummy, yummy crack chicken, and I've given them recipes for all of those on the last few episodes. So if you look back, you'll see recipes for all of my favorite meals. And I did supplement with, I'd say I averaged probably one of my cheap Walmart Equate brand protein shakes. I like the chocolate flavor myself. And I did have one of those every day to supplement my protein. 
So let's look at my numbers. For my rings, I did close my Apple Fitness rings six of the seven days. I didn't bother worrying about it the day we drove up here to Maine. Well, that takes a big chunk out of the day and we were visiting and I really didn't bother with it that day. But six out of seven days is perfectly fine. For my workouts, I did get in great walks, both in Pennsylvania on the Lebanon Valley Rail Trail as well as right in my own neighborhood right around my house. And here in Maine, I've gotten in good walks each day as well. My seven-day glucose reading, using my continuous glucose monitor, my seven-day 24-hour average has been 95, which is well down into the optimal blood sugar range. That equates to an A1C of about 4.9. And I love an A1C of about 4.9. I no longer am seeing the higher pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes readings, which is super duper. I, I really like that. Happy about that. My body fat percentage right now is sitting at 22.9%. And you may remember that I have a goal of getting it to no higher than 17%. So 6% of my weight, I still need to drop down, which right now 6% of my weight is about 11 pounds. So it looks like I still have about 11 pounds of excess body fat, which I am slowly chipping away at. And to me, that's the way to do it. Weight loss with only 11 pounds of excess body fat right now, weight loss is not my number one concern. It's certainly something I'm working towards, but keeping my A1C levels in the optimal range are my number one goal right now. My macros for the week, I've been helping myself out a lot. I've been getting my macros where I want them. I have averaged 72 grams of carbs each day, and right now I'm trying to keep that at 80 or below. So 72 grams of carbs I've averaged over the last seven days, and I've averaged 117 grams of protein. So I'm right there at my goal of 120 grams per day of protein. I'd like to hit that as my target. So 117, that's extremely close to 120, so I'm happy with that. My Manjaro update for this week is pretty much the same as it has been. I have now taken my fourth dose at 7.5 milligrams. So this week I did finish that box and I've been using Manjaro now for 11 full weeks. I'm in the middle of my 12th week right now. And as you've just heard, I'm having great A1C control. I have no issues there whatsoever. And as a side effect, for the 11 weeks I've been using Manjaro, I have lost 18 pounds. Now, that cannot continue forever. So that is averaging less than 2 pounds a week. It is a, just maybe 1.6 pounds per week, which I think for me is healthy. It's certainly less than 1% of weight loss per week, and that's okay. I can't continue that forever, though. I will eventually have to eat more than I am eating now, but most likely not much more. So we'll see what happens when I come to that. Now I am having a Manjaro issue, and not with the medicine itself, but with getting the medicine. As the medication is covered by my health insurance, and my doctor does prescribe it for me now, but she called in a prescription refill 10 days ago. And so far, and I have checked in with my pharmacy several times. In fact, I've checked 
different pharmacies as well, and everybody right now in my area seems to be out of stock. So it has been back ordered for 10 days. Now, I'm supposed to take my next dose in five days. So I don't know what I do if it doesn't come in. It's a little bit more time sensitive even than that because in six days, I get back on a cruise ship for almost two weeks. So if I don't have it in my hand in six days, I will be out of it, let's see at that point, for about three weeks. So we'll have to see what happens with that. That might be interesting. Stay tuned for that. This time next week, we'll know whether or not I got it. But yeah, I'm supposed to take my next dose in five days. So hopefully it comes in off a of back order by then. My challenge and win for the week. Well, I've talked about this now for a few weeks, and that is varying my movement. But I've come to the mental point right now where I'm just going to own what I'm doing. I am walking. And I do know that I definitely would benefit from strength training, especially now that I'm approaching 60. I definitely could benefit from maintaining muscle mass. But you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to fret over it. A few times this past week, I was oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and then I don't want to do it, and then by the time I ended up going out for my walk instead, it was later than the day that I wanted it to be, so I'm just going to put that in the back burner a little bit. While I know I would benefit, right now, doing the movement that I enjoy, that I look forward to, which is my outside walking, I'm just going to let that come, and the strength training will come back, I'm sure but I'm not gonna push myself into it or force myself into it. Now, if I were sitting on the couch, yes, that would be unacceptable, but I am getting in most days at least a one hour walk, a brisk walk. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna call that a win for now, take a little bit of pressure off myself and I'll get back to that hopefully here soon. All right, let's take a look at the news for the week. I do have four articles that I think are very interesting. Two of them are focused on exercise because that is the topic for the week. If you remember, the topic we're going to talk about here soon is, is exercise required in solving type 2 diabetes for me? That's our topic coming up, but for right now, let's take a look at the news. The first article related to exercise is entitled, The Surprising Way Walking Delivers a High-Intensity Workout. Now, walking can take many different forms, and they point out here in this article that if you're walking, sort of strolling on a flat level surface, you really are not getting intense exercise. But by changing up just a few things, you can definitely push that walking up into the moderate or even intense level, depending on how you're doing it. Now, they say some of the obvious ways are to incorporate hills. You've heard of high-intensity interval training. Well, briskly walking up a hill and then walking down and then briskly walking up a hill. Maybe you have rolling hills. Maybe it's the same hill. Maybe it's even climbing sets of stairs. You can actually get your heart rate up fairly high by varying the terrain that you're walking on if you're walking outside. Now, if you're walking inside, on a treadmill, the obvious way to do that is with your incline. In fact, I find that I'm able to walk two and a half, three miles an hour on a treadmill 
and that I can actually get my heart rate up into the 130s, maybe even close to 140, simply by jacking up the incline. Now, you can just keep it up high, 6, 8, 10% incline, or you can vary it. Maybe you do three minutes at 10% incline and then two minutes flat or two minutes at a 3% incline. You can vary that, make it into intervals to where you're really getting out of breath on the high incline and then you back off just a little bit for a couple of minutes and then you go intense again. So because they're saying this high intensity interval training is really, really beneficial for you. Another way you can do that is speed. You can do a speed walking. You can do just very brisk walk. Some people put on a weight vest. Other people you see carrying dumbbells around in their hands. Now, I don't know about that. I think that would throw off my balance or my my cadence or my stride a little bit. Wearing a weight vest is one way to do it. Obviously, if you don't have a weight vest, if you have a little overnight camping backpack, you can maybe put that on. Give yourself some more weight and make your walking a little bit more difficult. Be careful though. You don't want to injure yourself or you don't want to put yourself out of balance or out of whack by having something on your back. So experiment with that carefully. And then just moving faster, things like that. You can definitely get your heart rate up with just walking. And I find that hiking, while that's a form of walking, if you're up in the mountains or the hills and you're hiking, you can definitely get in a pretty moderately intense workout, which is a way to get more out of your walking. So good article. This next article doesn't have to do with exercise. It actually has to do with nutrition. The title is, This Vitamin Can Improve Blood Sugar, Especially If You Have Type 2 Diabetes. So what they're saying here is that this vitamin, vitamin D, specifically vitamin D3, and that has a long molecular name that I'm not going to try and pronounce, but we'll just call it vitamin D3, has a very important role in stimulating pancreatic beta cells. Now, pancreatic beta cells are where insulin itself is produced and stored. And it stimulates, this vitamin D3 stimulates those cells to secrete that insulin. It plays a direct and important role in getting out insulin into your body when you need it. So they say that it's almost impossible with our modern lifestyle to get enough vitamin D3 from sun or even from food. And for most people, they find here that of the people who have type 2 diabetes, over 50% of those people are deficient in their vitamin D levels. So, you know, if half the people aren't getting enough through just normal lifestyle, they recommend for those people supplementing. Now, this is definitely something you want to talk to your doctor about before you just try this on your own. But they say that for most folks, it helps to supplement 5,000 international units, 5,000 IU, of vitamin D3. And they specifically say, don't bother with D2. Evidently, that's different. It doesn't work the same way. But you want vitamin D3 if your doctor suggests that you get a supplement. And you can get a vitamin D blood test. It's normally part of a routine blood panel that might be ordered by your doctor. And they say that vitamin D3 usually comes in a pill that contains some fat because fat is what makes vitamin D bioavailable. So when you ingest it, you need it to be available to your body systems to use. And that's, that's done in fat. 
So it usually comes in some sort of little oil. It's almost like a yellowish clear capsule. So that's a good thing to think about is maybe you want to talk to your doctor and check if you have enough vitamin D because especially if, if you are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, that can dramatically impact your ability to secrete insulin from your pancreas. All right, this third article is back on strength and fitness, and it says the impact strength and fitness have on your lifespan. Well, obviously, we all want a good lifespan. We want to be healthy during that lifespan. But they say here that exercise and overall fitness is the key number one thing that you can have to help your overall mortality. In other words, your overall ability to stay alive, which I think is a pretty key thing for us. And they're saying that, generally speaking, three sessions a week is is typical, especially if you're in your older age. You don't need to be doing strength training every day. I should do some, though. But they recommend here three sessions, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, of total body strength training. And things that you can test, they say that will show your overall fitness are grip strength, your ability with pulling motions, hip hinging. They list different things here that you can check to, to judge your overall strength and fitness. And evidently, this is it's a non-contested notion that strength and fitness, so not just your ability to jog, but your ability to do work, to move weight, either lift it up off the ground, put it up over your head, those types of things, moving weight, pulling weight, pushing weight, standing with extra weight, squatting down low while holding weight, things that you want to do for life. I mean, think groceries, think grandkids, think putting away things up on a shelf. These are things that you want to be able to do. And uh, it says here that the number one indicator, the number one predictor of your longevity and how healthy and self-sufficient you're going to be later on in years is your focus and attention on strength training and overall fitness. So something very good to look at and of course that ties in with our topic today. This last article is entitled Type 2 Diabetes. Why many people who are eligible aren't getting treatments such as Ozempic. So This article focuses on the two main types of treatments that have come into use within the past 10 years or so. The first one is the one they mentioned. It's it's a GLP-1 agonist like Ozempic, also like Wegovy. Those two are the same medication. Also like Manjaro, which which I'm taking. They're all GLP-1 agonists. The other medication they mention are the SGLT2 inhibitors. Those are the medications like Farsiga, like I take. So I do take both of these classes of drugs, the GLP-1 agonist and the SGLT2 inhibitor. They're saying here in this article that 80% of adults with type 2 diabetes in the U.S. are not getting treatments that they're eligible for. Now, they say there's a couple of main reasons. That one is simply education. One is that they may be doctors who, let's say they've been treating type 2 diabetes, or more likely they're a general practitioner, they're just a family physician. 
So all the things they have to deal with and encounter, they might not be aware or fully informed on these new classes of drugs to treat type 2 diabetes because the SGLT2 inhibitors have not been around for more than 10, 15 years. The GLP-1 inhibitors, while they had some 10, 15 years ago, the more powerful, stronger ones have only come out in the last few years. In fact, Manjaro is out for now less than one year. So it's reasonable that some family practitioners, some general health providers maybe aren't fully aware of the benefits of all these drugs, but they are better and better than some of the older, more go-to type medications like metformin. So they say that eight in 10 people could benefit, people with type two diabetes, could benefit from this pair of drugs that only a small fraction are currently being prescribed compared to what could be prescribed. They're saying now that less than 4% of people get the GLP-1 medications like Ozempic or Manjaro compared to who's eligible for it. So they, by eligible, they mean they have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and their health insurance would actually cover it, less than 4%. And only 5% of the adults who are eligible for the SGLT2 treatment were currently using it. Now, one thing they mention here is that all Medicare beneficiaries with type 2 diabetes are eligible for both of these medications, yet so few are. And they say in addition to the education of the provider and education of the patient, the other thing that is an inhibitor is price, especially for the medications like Ozempic or Manjaro. Those can be over $1,000 a month if you get no health insurance coverage at all. But even if you have a copay of 100 bucks a month, that will dissuade many people from trying this medication simply because the cost of 100 bucks a month is undoable, unfortunately. And that's why maybe they get drugs like metformin, which are practically free even without health insurance. But there is hope for the future. They say that as more and more people are being educated and health insurance coverage is increasing for some of these newer medications, that the rate of prescription is going up. Both of these medications are now considered first-line diabetes treatment, even though they rarely are used as a first-line medication. So that's a good article to consider. It's, it's to me a shame when you have something that is available, is incredibly effective, yet many people are not using it who would benefit from it. Okay, let's look at our topic for the week. Now, this won't be a long, in-depth discussion. It's not necessarily a cut-and-dry topic, but there's only a few ways, really, in my mind to look at it. So our, our question for today is, is exercise really required when I'm trying to solve my type 2 diabetes? Now, I am not a physician nor a sports physiologist. I cannot tell you if you should be exercising. So please don't take what I'm about to discuss as a prescription for you because it certainly is not that. I'm not one to prescribe what you should or should not be doing. I'm just simply trying to tell you what I think about what my experience has been and then it, maybe it gives you something to discuss with your sports coach or your doctor. So 
I fully recognize that exercise is quote unquote required for healthy longevity, general health, the ability as we age to take care of ourselves, and even improving mental attitude. I find for myself that when I get out and move, whether it be a CrossFit workout or a nice long walk in the woods, my mental attitude is improved just as much as any physiological markers I might be measuring. So it's both a mental boost and a physical boost to do exercise. In fact, I'm going to quote that article we just looked at, and I saw this when I was reading it, and it goes, the data are unambiguous. Exercise not only delays actual death, but also prevents both cognitive and physical decline better than any other intervention. It is the single most potent tool we have in the health span enhancing toolkit, and that includes nutrition, sleep, and medications. So that was a quote out of that article we just looked at. It was the article entitled, The Impact Strength and Fitness Have on Your Lifespan. So you'll find that quote in that article. What I find, and this is where I'm going to throw in a however, when I'm talking about controlling my blood sugar, the exercise that I do on any particular individual day is not the big lever for the short-term blood sugar control. Like, if I'm out briskly walking for an hour and a half, yes, I will see my blood sugar typically drop a little bit towards the later parts of that workout and even for a couple hours after the workout. But I can control it in a much larger fashion by controlling what it is I eat. So I don't see the reason that I get out and walk today or the reason I go to a CrossFit workout tomorrow, I don't see the reason being that day's blood sugar control. However, exercising, it does turn some of that glucose in the muscle into work. You, your muscle is burning some of that glucose that you have managed to store in there. And so when it gets replaced, it obviously gets that sugar from your bloodstream to replace what was in your muscle. As long as you're sensitive to the effects of insulin, then that will take some sugar out of your bloodstream and put it back into your muscle to replace what you've burnt. Now, I can see that on the meter. But this effect of insulin, that's a problem if you have type 2 diabetes. You're not as sensitive as other people without the diagnosis. So you're not getting that sugar back in those muscles as fast, but it still does help. Building muscle. So now I'm talking about the long-term, the long-term effects of getting out there hiking several times a week or doing CrossFit a few times a week or lifting dumbbells or that type of thing. That helps you build more muscle. And it's that act of building more muscle, and therefore you gotta keep that muscle fed and when you do work, you're able to do more work because you have more muscle and you're going to burn more energy. It's that long-term, 24 hours a day, seven days a week ability to burn more sugar that actually helps over the long-term your exercise with controlling your type 2 diabetes. So, is exercise required for today? No. But just like for today, if you go to the gym, you're not going to see bigger muscles just from today. Where exercise helps the 
control of your type 2 diabetes and where it's absolutely required for greater longevity, greater general health, greater ability to care for yourself is in the long term. So to answer my own question, is it required for today? No. But today can be part of a long-term habit, a long-term sequence of exercises that will, generally speaking, build some more muscle, make you more active, and then in the long term, you are burning more sugar each and every day. And that will definitely help with your type 2 diabetes. Okay, it's time for your questions. You know what? I'm a little excited. Can you tell? Can you hear it in my voice? I'm a little excited. I got four listener questions in this week. That's never happened before. I am really happy about that. I I thank you all for writing in. And if you also would like to share a question, there's two easy ways to do it. You simply send me an email. My email address is tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com. Send me an email. It's the easiest way. Another easy way is to go over to the website, solvingtype2diabetes.com, and then you click on Feedback on the menu. And you'll see a little form there, and you just simply put in your question or your comment or your feedback and send that to me, and I will also get an email and uh, respond to you here on the next podcast. And also, if it's appropriate and it's the type of question you ask, I can also send you some information privately as well. So let me read the first question from Kathy. Kathy writes in, Hi, Tom. It's so motivating to hear how well you are doing. Keep up the good work. It's really paying off. Question. Are your numbers ever off the first day after inserting a new sensor? Have you ever heard of or tried soaking the new sensor. I started using the Freestyle Libre 3 approximately six weeks ago and love it. However, during the first 24 hours after inserting the new sensor, my readings are unusually high. A finger stick confirmed that the CGM readings were not accurate and significantly higher than my monitor readings. Everything evened out the next day. I couldn't find anything on the Libre site to address the issue. But I heard that one way to ensure better accuracy for the first 24 hours is to soak the new sensor for several hours before activating it. This means that for several hours you'd be wearing two sensors, one fresh inactive one and the soon to expire active one. Once the active one expires, you would take it off and activate the fresh one. The idea, I guess, is that your body has more time to adjust to the new sensor. Are you aware of such a thing? Well, thanks, Kathy. appreciate the question. Thanks for the kind words. And yeah, I have read, and in fact, I have read it, I think it was on their website, on the Freestyle Libre website, where it says that accuracy for the first 24 hours isn't that great. Now, I've only experienced personally, and I have been wearing it for about 20 months, I've only experienced maybe the first three or four hours as being inaccurate. So... If one expires and I get the last reading off of it and then I immediately put a new one on for that first couple hours maybe, and it's not even all the time, but maybe for the first couple hours, I will get, it's usually a very, very high reading. Like you say here, you get an unusually high reading. And then after two, three hours, I simply start getting normal readings again. So what I do personally 
is if that happens, let's say my blood sugar was sitting at about 85 or 90 or wherever, and then I put in a new sensor and that one starts reading 240. Well, I know my blood sugar is not 240. Even if it reads 130, my blood sugar just did not instantly by itself go from 90 to 130, especially if I haven't had anything to eat. So I usually wait two or three hours and I see, oh, it's back down in the 90 range again. And then I simply delete those first three hours worth of data. And in the NutriSense app that I use, I can delete that data. Now I'll stop using that app here as soon as my current CGM expires because I'm going to the new Libre 3s like you use. And that would require me to use the Freestyle Libre 3 app. And I don't know, honestly, because I've never used that app yet, whether or not I can delete those first two or three hours of the data. But that's what I currently do. I've never had one be inaccurate for the first full 24 hours. So that hasn't happened to me. But this idea of quote-unquote soaking, in other words, putting one in on before you're ready to activate it, I honestly have no experience with that, so I, I cannot give you a recommendation either way. But let us know how that works if you try that. I'd be very interested in hearing back from you as to how that goes. Our next question here comes from Stacy. Stacy says, Hi Tom, I recently found your podcast and enjoy it very much. I have not had a chance to listen to every episode, but will eventually. I'm not sure if you've discussed in an episode I have not listened to yet, but how do you feel about intermittent fasting? As a fellow cruise traveler, I appreciate you sharing your strategies for managing type 2 diabetes while cruising and away from home. Thanks again for sharing your experiences, Stacy. Well, thank you, Stacy. I appreciate you writing in, and uh, thank you for your kind words and your question here about intermittent fasting. How do I feel about intermittent fasting? Well, I don't feel one way or the other. I think that different ways of eating can have differently dramatic results on individuals depending on who you are, depending on your own physiology. Now, for those that are not familiar, intermittent fasting means intentionally doing without food for a certain period of time. This could be just the eight hours you're asleep. This could be 12 hours. Let's say you only eat between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Or maybe you only eat between 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. Or maybe you only eat every other day. I mean, there's very many different types of intermittent fasting. And honestly, if you find certain ways of eating are helpful to you, that's great. I don't know that they help me a lot. I would say six out of seven days, the only thing I have in the morning is coffee. And I do put heavy cream in my coffee, a couple tablespoons, which has no carbohydrates. And it's usually the carbohydrate that people are trying to avoid a constant trickle. Some people feel and of course, there's been studies, there's been studies on everything, but some people feel that by limiting your carbohydrates intake to just a few hours a day gives your body a chance to recover from eating, basically, and that it gives your body a chance to do some housekeeping in your cells and you're not constantly working your liver trying to process incoming food, that it gives it a break. They think that maybe that's the way people ate thousands and thousands of years ago. They weren't constantly snacking or grazing. I don't know. But if it's something that works for you, go for it. With my way of eating, I'm not intentionally intermittent fasting, but I do tend to eat food, quote unquote, from maybe 
noon until maybe 7 p.m. So, yeah, am I intermittent fasting? I go about 17 hours a day typically without, especially without having any type of carbohydrate, but that's just my lifestyle. That's just working for me. So let us know how it goes. Let us know how you do if you decide to try intermittent fasting, and we'd be very interested in hearing about that. So Joe sends in the question. Joe says, hello, Tom. I recently discovered your podcast. I'm going through the past episodes, and I'm finding it informative and inspirational. I am pre-diabetic, A1C equal 5.9, and have recently started using a glucose meter to track my blood sugar as I make changes to my diet. I want to see if I can push my A1C lower. It has been at that level for at least 10 years. I have been an active cyclist for more than 20 years, so my weight and fitness are not an issue for me. So diet is the only knob I have left. I am very interested in using a CGM as I really want to dial in my on-the-bike nutrition. Up until now, I have followed the advice prevalent in the endurance community that you can pretty much eat as much sugar as you want while you're on the bike since it's needed to supply your working muscles. I'm concerned that I have been doing myself harm. I want to see what my blood sugar is doing for my longer rides, two to four hours, sometimes longer. I am considering either NutriSense or Vary. Have you looked at Vary? Do you know how they compare to NutriSense? I believe that Vary is a bit cheaper, and I don't think that I can get my insurance to pay for this. I'm a retired electrical engineer and enjoy data tracking and N equal 1 nutrition experiments that I can do. Thanks, Joe. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate the fact that you're finding the, uh, the podcast helpful. I hope you continue listening. Hey, share it with some of your other biking friends. And that's something maybe I could ask everyone to do, actually. If you're getting something out of this podcast, if you're enjoying it, if you're still listening 40 minutes into this podcast, maybe share it with a friend. Share it with someone who you think might benefit from it as well. So, Joe, back to your question. I don't know anything about the company Very. Evidently, it's a company that also provides continuous glucose monitors through telemedicine. If you're going to go that route, and I assume they all use the same monitor, I would suggest going the cheapest way you can. Now, you say here that you don't think your insurance will pay for this because you do not have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, and that probably is true. However, if you could still ask your doctor to write the prescription, I found that using coupon programs like GoodRx and other prescription coupon programs that are out there, you can get your doctor to write a prescription and still end up paying less out of pocket than if you went with one of these companies called NutriSense or Vary. It's not a big difference maybe. For example, when I was stopping with NutriSense and switched to getting my CGMs through my doctor, I was currently paying about $199 a month with NutriSense. And I found that with GoodRx, even if I had no insurance coverage, which luckily I do, but even if I did not, I could get the CGMs cheaper through my local pharmacy using GoodRx. I think the cost was about $140 a month compared to $199. Now, I do get them through my own doctor and my own health insurance now with a copay of $75 per month. That covers two sensors. So that's a way distance down from $199 that I was paying to NutriSense. So, yeah, I would go for the cheapest way you can, and that might still be with a prescription and your doctor, even if you don't get insurance coverage. Now, you ask here about sugar intake while on a long-distance bike ride. Now, I, I, 
Man, that's a tough one. This is definitely something that you want to do research into, talk to your doctor about. I personally think that I, I'm trying to remember the name of this ultra marathoner. Okay, so his name is Timothy Noakes, N-O-K-E-S. Now, this is a guy who ran ultra marathons. And in his 50s, he got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. He was noticing some issues with tiredness and just was not feeling right. And he had full-blown type 2 diabetes. He was a super exerciser. He would run, his short run might have been six or eight miles. And he was running ultra marathons several times a year and running marathons in between. So you're talking somebody who's running on the regular well over 20 miles, sometimes over 30 miles. And he also was the school of hey, it's sugar, your muscles need sugar, eat the sugar, you're going to burn it. And if you look at the just calorie count of what you do burn on one of your long bike rides, it, I'm sure, is much more than the sugar you're taking in. But it's something about that sugar, something about taking in that glucose, and that's going to cause you to pump out insulin, which is good. You want the insulin because you want to push that into your muscles so you can use it. But I think that's causing... A stress. Now again, I am not a physician, I am not a nutritionist, but I think that sugar is causing a stress on your body. Now there are carbohydrate formulations out there that you can take that are long chain carbohydrates that do not spike blood sugar like glucose does, these goos or these other formulations that you can take as an endurance athlete. And some of those long chain carbohydrates have almost no spike in your blood sugar, yet fuel you very well for your long endurance events. So you might want to research into some of those. But I'm of the camp where I believe that even for an endurance athlete, all this extra sugar, sugar, sugar pumping it into your system is causing stress on your system. But definitely something to talk to your doctor about. Definitely something to talk to maybe an endocrinologist about. Because, yes, you would not expect someone who's an athlete such as yourself to now be pre-diabetic. And it might be that sugar that you pump in during some of these long workouts. So, Joe, let me know how it goes. I'm very interested in this and how you're doing. And please write back as you learn more about your own situation. And maybe you can share that with us. So thanks very much for that. All right, here we are. The last question. This is getting long. This last question is a short one. It's from Mike. Mike asks... If I'm not mistaken, you got your Manjaro prescription from a telehealth provider. If so, why did you go that route? Was Manjaro difficult for you to get from your regular prescriber, even with a type 2 diabetes diagnosis? Is your insurance covering it, or are you having to pay out of pocket? Well, thanks. Easy question here to answer. Yes, I did get my Manjaro originally from a telehealth provider. It's called Sequence. Their website is Join Sequence. And why did I go that route? Simply from convenience. I had just recently seen my doctor when I decided to try Manjaro. I knew it would be easy to get from the telehealth provider because I did have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. It was never a question with my insurance. They covered it from the very beginning. They cover it whether I get it from a telehealth provider because that's a physician or I get it from my normal primary care provider. Either way, the insurance covers it just fine. So that was never a consideration. I did not ever have to pay out of pocket. And quite frankly, I cannot put out a thousand dollars a month if I would have to pay for it out of pocket. So that would be a non-starter for me. It wasn't difficult to get from my provider. It was just easier 
to get from this telehealth provider. And then simply when I went to my next appointment, I discussed it with my primary care physician, and now she has started writing the prescription herself. It's not currently doing much good because they're out of stock. But either way, regardless, it's the pharmacy who's out of stock, and it doesn't matter who wrote the prescription, I'd still be in that same bind. So thank you, Mike, for that email. I hope that helps. Let's look at for next week, next week's episode. Now, it ties in with Mike's question, and it's going to be life after Manjaro. Do I take Manjaro now for the rest of my life? I take a blood pressure medication. And even though while I'm taking that medication, my blood pressure is normal. I've gotten the right dose. And while before I had very high blood pressure, I mean, before this medication, I was getting readings of 160 over 100, which is too high for me. But now I'm about 126 over 82. That's my average. That's my typical on any given day. And I check it about once a week. But would I stop taking that blood pressure medicine just because my blood pressure is now normal while I'm taking it? I mean, that doesn't make sense. So what about this Manjaro? Will I take that forever? Do I have 20, 25 years of life left? Who knows? But am I now getting a box of this Manjaro every month for the rest of my life? What are my options? What are my alternatives if I don't want to take Manjaro for the rest of my life? So that's going to be our topic next week, and I will see you then. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.